Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're partnering with Debunked, which dispels myths about the opioid crisis and harm reduction. We're going to be talking with Brian Nielsen, the lead CPSS trainer for the USU Certified Peer Support Program. He's going to tell us a bit about his amazing recovery. We'll also be talking with digital marketing executive and event producer Michelle Church, who helped create a light to remember, which honors those lost to substance use disorder, including her brother Aaron. Uh, Debunked was created by the Utah State University Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement and Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative, which are housed within the USU M. Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services, Department of Kinesiology and Health Science, and USU Extension. The program is made possible by SAMHSA, Utah Public Radio, and Community Partners. So we welcome in uh, Brian Nilsson. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Appreciate you uh, taking the time to be with us. Uh, we also welcome in uh, Michelle Church. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let me start with you, uh, Brian uh, Nielsen. I want to hear a bit of your story, but first of all, um, the Certified Peer Support Program. What What is that? That's a wonderful thing, yeah, helping using your own experience uh, to help someone else. Um, So I understand you've been in uh, recovery for at least 13 years, so congratulations, it's a wonderful thing. Um, I understand it's a dual recovery, so spent 40-plus years in active addiction and plus 20 years of uh, schizophrenia. Yeah, it's been quite the ride. But I found out, you know, over the last 10 years or so that schizophrenia was only the beginning of my journey. Uh, who knows where it's all going to go. Yeah. So uh, the uh, the substance use, was that was that related to the schizophrenia? No. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I was, as a kid, I was kind of, you know, experimenting with the weed and all this, the alcohol and smaller things. I ended up getting in a lot of trouble, um, spent a whole bunch of time in juvenile system, and then after I got out of juvenile, I was doing pretty good for a while, and then my schizophrenia kicked in, and so it was a very dark time in my life, but I ended up, uh, it was probably a couple of years after my schizophrenia kicked in that I started using masks to try to hide the symptoms and try to be more normal like the rest of the people. Um, I know that sounds strange, but mm-hmm. for people that use the mask, um, they had kind of the same symptoms as I was showing with my schizophrenia, so I felt more like I fit in. I spent a lot of years doing that. So, uh, so I finally ended up in the state hospital. Mm-hmm. I finally did some help. Yeah, that's interesting, and I think that's not, not uh, incredibly unusual, right, uh, that... Uh, using substances to, as you said, mask or to maybe, you know, informally treat um, mental illness. Yeah, I just kind of felt like I fit in more, um, those kind of people. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, as you say, quite the journey um, in and out of prisons, hospitals, institutions. Um, that must have been some pretty low times in your life. It was. It was. Uh, it was pretty dark after I had schizophrenia kicked in. I was kind of lost and alone. I just got into whatever I could. I ended up did over twenty years in prison, in and out, in and out, trying to, you know, just stay and survive, I guess. And then finally, I got into the state hospital for a couple of years. They helped me. Uh, with the mental health side of things, but they didn't really help me too much with the substance abuse side. And so I still ended up going back to prison again after that. And mm-hmm. Once I finally found a treatment for dual recovery, uh, things changed pretty fast. I became a certified peer support, and then the state reached out and wanted me to help bring peer support to the state of Utah, so I jumped into that. It's just been one journey after the next since. You said the uh, the key was finding a program for dual, dual uh, I guess, recovery. Um, I, I don't know if that's... Uh, it, t- it took you a while to find that. I don't know if the, those uh, programs were out there. It wasn't. And the way the system's set up, um, I tried to get treatment for the last five or six years of my prison sentences, but nobody would take me because I was such a, I was a long-term, um, I had a long-term criminal history, so it was just about, you know, catching Brian and getting back in prison and try to minimize the harm. And then uh, these people from Valley came along and just, I was on my way back to prison again, actually, and I was suicidal and I, I actually bailed out of jail so I could commit suicide, and some things happened where I ended up back in jail. Um, and then this program walked in, and they said, are you done? I said, I'm done. <laughs> 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 mm. said, you don't know how done I am. But they just offered me a safe place to work on both my, my schizophrenia and my addiction at the same pl- same time. Mm. So you, uh... so that kind of lit a spark in me. Sounds like that was was I guess the low point. You bailed out to to go commit suicide. What 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 happened? That diverted you? Well, the plan was I was going to bail out. I was going to spend some time with family till they went to court, and I was going to do a bunch of heroin and just overdose. But my brother somehow found out. And I I mean I, I used a lot of precautions to try to avoid being put back in jail, but we had a bondsman that happened to be in the family, and I don't know if it was legal or not, but their bounty hunters come and snatched me up and threw me back in jail anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was a blessing in disguise, I guess. At the moment, I was really upset, but... <clears throat> yeah. yeah. It had to be a blessing. It led me to treatment, <laughs> led me to becoming a peer support, and it led me to... Even to building this new nonprofit I got going on. Yeah, well, I want to. I want to hear about those things. As we go along. We'll we'll loop back to that uh, before I turn to Michelle and uh, tell a bit of uh, her story and her brother's story. Uh, your motto, I understand, is "Cast your pebble and be the ripple you wish to see in the world." It's a great motto. How did you come to that? Well, one of the therapists in treatment used to tell me to to be the ripple I want to see around me, and so. 
as I started training peer support specialists, I realized that each one of them got their own their own pebble they can cast into the recovery environment. And so my motto kind of became, you know, cast your own pebble and be the ripple you want to see in the recovery environments around you. And uh, since since Utah's started training peer supports themselves, and over the last three or five years, especially. Uh, the ripples going around through the recovery community are just huge now. That's kind of where that motto came from. Yeah, wonderful. We'll loop back around to you. I want to turn to uh, Michelle Church. Um, so you're a marketing executive, event producer. Tell me just a little bit about you, and then we'll, we'll talk about your brother. Yeah, um, I um, I was fortunate to spend about 10 years with the Tribune, um, and they gave me a lot of leeway to create, um, not only to grow my digital career, but to create some different events along the way. So um, I was able to get my feet wet, um, experience in um, creating fashion events, um, the SALT Awards for the Salt Lake Tribune, um, as well as, you know, a lot of community events. Um, so I've definitely been plugged into the community and just creating different events as we've seen needs throughout the years. Uh, my boyfriend, my partner, and I, we own a salon on State Street, and typically we do a lot of community events for teen suicide awareness and kids' children's art shows. So we're very connected to the community, but um, I stumbled upon a light to remember more because of uh, my brother's experience. Mm-hmm. Before we get to that, um, so events, uh, COVID must have thrown a curveball. COVID, made, I mean, it changed everything, our whole world. Um, and events did not, you know, were not um, spared from that. We had had the opportunity, which was really nice. We had the opportunity to um, have one COVID-free event under our belt. Um, and every time you launch an event for the first time, it's really just a gamble to see how it will go. But um, we had a really good turnout. Um, it was. It ended up being impactful for the community. We learned a lot from it. Um, so we did have one event under our belt before COVID happened. And COVID, of course, threw a huge curveball because – um, because of what it did to events anyway, but in coordination with what it was just doing to um, the substance abuse community and, and isolation and making that just so much worse. So we knew the need was there, but we, we had to customize, COVID customize, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I hadn't even thought about that uh, factor. Isolation, of course, we all experienced that, and there's some stress involved, but I would that especially hit uh, those those you know uh, who are addicted, those in recovery. Yeah, I think that looking back during the time, I was very naive, and my my thinking at that point was everything is on lockdown. That that means that you know no one's going to be going to get drugs, and I mean it's it's laughable that you know that that was the thought honestly that ran through my mind during that time. But really, all I had to do was peek a little bit, you know, into studies and statistics and actually how it was affecting the community to see that, obviously, there was a very adverse effect, and there has been a very adverse effect to to those who are in recovery, trying to be in recovery, and, you know, maneuvering in an um, even more isolation. 
Let me check back in momentarily with Brian Nielsen. Uh, Brian Nielsen, uh, tell me about how that's affected people you maybe work with or or know. The the pandemic, isolation, and uh, maybe isolation from from the the, the need, you know, the counseling and other things you need. Isolation's been horrible for peers. There was, I think we lost three to suicide that I knew of. And multiple, multiple relapses because of the isolation. People couldn't, people couldn't really reach out and have that bonding. I mean, I know people tried to jump up and do Zoom meetings, but it's just not the same for people in recovery, you know, and they felt isolated and alone and... Mm. And so there was a lot of, of fallout from that. Yeah. Uh, it was a pretty dark time for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, Even agencies shut it, down, so they lost their whole recovery support system. Mm-hmm. It was a mess. Yeah, the, the, the things, um, the, the, yeah, the, a lot of fallout, including in, in this community. So, Michelle Church, uh, tell me a bit about your, uh, first of all, your, your brother Aaron, um, tell me about Aaron the person, and then uh, tell me a bit about his his addiction, that journey. Oh, um, Aaron the person was is was um, he was amazing. He was bright, and he was funny, and he was very helpful. Um, his addiction started very early on um, in his early teens. So um, we lost him in his early 40s. So um, that journey was, in essence, our journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, it's hard for Aaron, right? Hard for the family as well. And this is your younger brother, right? Special place in your heart, I'm what? sure, right? Uh, um, so w- what kinds of things did the family try to do? Um, well, Aaron also got into trouble at an early age, so um, he ended up in the criminal justice system, which, you know, almost like COVID to, you know, and what that did to isolation, um, it's just insult to injury. Um, he went through drug courts and lots of different programs, but, you know, none of them, um, they were just really more governmentally run and a system made to kind of churn you through so um, he spent a lot of time in the criminal justice system, and um, it wasn't until the year we actually created this event that um, he had been he'd been able to stay out of trouble for a while. And for many years, we kind of classified him as a you know a functional um, addict. We knew he was still struggling, but um, going through different programs. But um, it wasn't until the year we actually started this program that Aaron entered his first. Um, voluntary um, treatment program. So we kind of thought we were, you know, turning a new leaf and um, and heading down a new path, but, you know, still very naive in, in the journey of what opioid addiction and substance abuse is like. So um, we still obviously had a lot to learn. Mm. Well, uh, like what? Uh, tell me. Uh, that's surprising, but not surprising in a way, right? That you, a lot of twists and turns, a lot of complication, a lot to learn, right? But even though you'd been on this journey as a family, you said you're still naive in some ways about it. Well, I guess, um, you know, I was very naive in thinking that, you know, up to this point, it, it had been a very criminal um, 
background and, and a lot of his treatment has been, had been dictated through the courts, what he needed just to get in and out of, of jail at the time. But going, you know, inpatient, um, it was one of those things where we thought, this is this is the silver bullet. And I, I mean, it just sounds so crazy to say that now, but um, thinking that one residential, you know, 30-day stay was going to be it. And of course, that's not what we wanted. Um, we had hoped that he would, we'd actually researched longer programs that um, Aaron was always very opposed to. Um, and even coming out of treatment, he went into 30-day residential, and then he went into a transitional house uh, for a couple of months. But really, you know, I wish we would have had um, a longer-term scope. And I think the thing that I have noticed more than anything else in my experience is Aaron had been using Suboxone, and he had been trying to get off for so many years, so many years. And I think that what I wish I would have known is um, – you know, medical-assisted treatment is something that you can be on for the rest of your life, and that is okay. You, um, you can be on it for six months. You could be on it for five years. But people are successfully on it um, for a long time. And previously, I thought boxing was just from the devil, and it was just even worse. But now that I understand more about what substance abuse does to your brain and how it is a terminal chronic or how it's a chronic um, illness, knowing that everyone's past can be different and that is okay, but find the thing that works for you. And, you know, if the boxing works for you and if you're working with a medical provider, it can be a long-term solution. It, it can be. Well, so we're uh, due for a break. Let's take a break, uh, come back, and uh, and hear more of these uh, uh, fascinating stories um, and uh, treatment and, and what can be done. Uh, we're talking with Brian Nielsen, who's uh, been telling us uh, his amazing journey, 40-plus years of active addiction, 20 years uh, d- diagnosed with schizophrenia, 13 years now um, in recovery. Um, and he is uh, the lead CPSS trainer for USU Certified Peer Support Program. We're going to be talking about peer support uh, programs uh, when we come back. Uh, Michelle Church is with us as well. Um, she lost her younger brother, Aaron, um, uh, just a couple of years after they created together A Light to Remember. A Light to Remember is, is ongoing. We'll talk about that and much else following uh, this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're partnering with Debunked, which dispels myths about the opioid crisis and harm reduction. We're in conversation with Brian Nielsen, who's the lead CPSS trainer for the USU Certified Peer Support Program. Um, And we're talking with digital marketing executive and event producer Michelle Church, who helped create a light to remember. Created that with her brother Aaron. It honors those lost to substance use disorder, uh, which uh, unfortunately that number includes her brother Aaron as well. I'd like to uh, start this segment with uh, continuing this uh, story with Michelle Church. Um, so you were talking about uh, how your brother Aaron went into this um, addiction recovery program. Um, I understand as, as he was transitioning um, from uh, the first residential uh, substance abuse center that, that he'd gone into, uh, together you created a light to remember. Tell me about that. Yeah, so um, I had um, done some 
um, fancy finagling to, um, along with my family, to get Aaron into treatment. Um, we knew he was on, at the time we knew he was not on a good path, and we were just really pulling together whatever resources we could, which weren't a lot. So I was able to find um, a treatment center that um, I could do some, some trade work with and to basically trade my services in order to get um, Aaron into treatment. And it was great. Um, it, well, it was it was its own journey. It had its ups, it had, it had its downs, but it was a, it was a great journey. Um, but while Aaron was there, and I was consulting for um, this um, this treatment center, we we were really looking with a, for a way to engage with the community. So we were able to link up with Utah State University in Davis County. And um, it was one of, I've, I've had the opportunity of creating many events. And the first year is always just a big question mark. You never really know what's going to happen. Um, and it was even more so because this was a project that, you know, Aaron and I were semi working on together. Um, I was doing it, you know, as part of my contract to get him into treatment. And he was transitioning, you know, out of 30 day residential treatment and into, um, into more of a, um, a home. And um, so we had had many different conversations and, and really we tried to build something that, I mean, I guess initially it was around um, remembering the people who had, lo- who had lost those um, loved ones to substance abuse because, you know, I was just, you know, overwhelmed and I was grateful for the fact that I hadn't lost my brother. Um, and at the same time, we wanted to create, you know, he was doing outpatient treatment, and we wanted to create a program that was meaningful for, you know, what, what the, um, his group was doing. So together, we, we, um, we came up with this event, and we had these great partners with Utah State University. We were able to use their Kaysville campus that had a pond, and um, we had this open event where we did naloxone training, and we were able to distribute naloxone and, and um, different resources to the community. They could drive through and listen to music, um, share stories. We had a memory wall up of people who had lost um, loved ones to um, to substance abuse. We heard just you know the most terrible stories, um, but we also heard stories of hope. And you know there were people in recovery there who had also lost people and were you know still fighting. So. It was it, it was a very impactful event. We you know had a shared moment of silence on the patio there at Utah State University by the pond. We were able to put um, lanterns in the pond with some of the group that was out in um, kayaks, just kind of gathering them together. They could read the stories that people had written on the lanterns. So I think it was you know impactful for them as well. So it was one of those events where you, you you do your research, you talk to people, you do your best to put it together, and then you just, you know, see how it goes. And it was a really beautiful event. Yeah, that, that does sound beautiful. Uh, this is, um, this event's usually, what, around International Overdose Awareness Day is what I'm reading? Yep, it takes place on International Overdose Awareness Day, um, August 31st. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, unfortunately, um, what uh, following the third annual event, which was last year, um, your brother, um, I think, overdosed, right? He did. He did. Yeah, which uh, that's that's just got to be such a such a gut punch. 
Um, and so I guess added extra poignance to continue this uh, event, which you had created with him. You know, it's funny. Um, after um, you learned the news of Aaron, um, outside of family, I have to tell you that one of the first people I wanted to connect with um, were my partners at Utah State University because I felt so conflicted. I felt so conflicted. Um, I I had a lot of feelings. Um, But I wanted them to know that what they were doing, it was it was still working. And, you know, my brother hadn't been engaged in the last couple of years of events. And I think that that made me feel, you know, like an imposter or, you know, strange about participating, which, you know, my daughter, I would bring my teenage daughter with me and her friends to participate. But um, it just came to the point where um, even though it didn't work for us, I know it can still work for other people. And I know that there's a lot more we have to do. I just, there's so much more we have to do. So um, this year will be, um, take on a little bit different meaning. It'll be coming up uh, next month, I guess. Uh, yes. The, the fourth, yep. an, fourth annual and, and continuing yeah. on from there. Uh, we'll talk a bit about, uh, you know, what maybe some lessons learned and, um, uh, uh, when we return to to, uh, to to you, I want to turn back to Brian Nielsen. Um, I'm I'm curious. So, you said Brian Nielsen that it's very important for you and probably for others that there's there was a program for you know for dual uh, recovery, uh, dual treatment for mental illness and for substance use uh, disorder. Um, so I'm wondering about recovery. What 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 made you be successful? What what are, what are the keys uh, do you think to a successful recovery? I think the keys. <clears throat> excuse me. I think the keys to recovery, especially long term recovery, becoming uh, becoming finding the person's own strength. Um. It's way too often that these, you know, the government programs, the, the, I mean, bless their heart, they wouldn't be here without them. But people tend to see um, that kind of a system. It's it's an older system. People kind of see it as, you know, they're dictating what I have to do. And the beauty about peer support is, is that it kind of bridges um, it bridges a person between the government agency and the dictations and being able to find personal strength, how to, how to navigate through all that stuff on your own, um, empowered level. Um, I think when I first got into recovery, there wasn't peer support, but I got lucky enough that some of the therapists were, were, as if there was peer supports, I guess I'd say. Um, they kind of empowered me just to do my own thing, to find my own solution. I mean, my own belief systems inside what was being dictated to me. And I, I kind of wish that maybe Aaron might have got some some more of that kind of benefit earlier on. Um, 
Does that answer your question? Yeah, yes. I'm not sure I'm hitting yeah. on that point. Yes, <laughs> definitely. I want to follow up with uh, with the peer support. What? Uh, tell me a little bit more about peer support. So peer support, to become a peer support, you need a year um, in recovery, at least a year in recovery. Um, you need to have some letters of recommendation from a licensed clinical professional and then one from somebody that knows your journey personally. I'm going to get you certified. We, we, you need to apply through the state first. And once the state has approved your application, they'll send um, the application to one of the state-approved trainers. And so we'll certify them. We, we spend 40 hours of pretty intensive training teaching people how to, what's the difference between an illness story and what's a recovery story. We talk about ethics. Um, because we do need to be professional and ethical. We talk about problem solving and how to ignite the spark of hope in people. Um, we talk about effective listening and how to listen and how to not just jump to our own solutions because really recovery is, is the process of gaining control over your life um, and the direction you actually wanted to go beyond your diagnosis. Um, and for me... I mean, I spent a lot of years with people trying to tell me what I had to do, right? But the direction I wanted to go wasn't the direction that was pointing me. And so I, I stayed lost in addiction and mental illness for quite some time. But that's the beauty of it. We teach them how, how to you know ignite that spark through using the methods that I talk about. I want to follow up with that. That's, that's powerful, ignite the spark of hope. I imagine hope takes a beating when you're deep in uh you know in in the illness um but uh, how 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 do you ignite that spark of hope well with the usu training we had five stages of recovery um usually when somebody's diagnosed they're just shattered you know their whole world shattered they don't know what's next and they usually slip into to what we call a life is limited stage and so they think this is all i got and for me, even in my um, dual disorders, when I was, you know, using meth and heroin and everything else and pretty psychotic, I, I just settled into the fact that this is all I got. This is who I'm going to be for the rest of my life. The spark of hope comes when, when you just have somebody sitting there, you know, kind of trying to minimize the effects of the diagnosis. Um just try to ease some of the pain that's going on and, and just start asking questions. Okay, well, that's a, that's a poopy diaper, but what's next? Where, where, where do you want to go with your life? Start, you know, trying to ignite some kind of little spark of hope in there. Then once you get that spark of hope lit, of course, you, you quickly move to some supports. What do you need to start making it happen? And then, you know, the action stages of, well, let's just get it done Hmm. Well, we'll return to that uh, as we go along. I want to turn back to Michelle Church here. Um, so um, you, you sent me a few uh, items prior to the conversation here. This one strikes me, Michelle Church. Functional addiction does not exist. What do you mean by that? Um, by that, it's it's really, I think, the story that I was probably telling myself or a lot of, you know, my family was saying is 
we we knew Aaron was still struggling, but we we kind of put him into this bucket of, you know, he was he was a functional addict, and it, even though I knew better, um, and I also know that you know when you start taking Suboxone and, and different items like that. And then you continue to use that really becomes um, where life becomes can become even more dangerous. But we we definitely we've been doing it for so we've been living it with Aaron for so long that we kind of became comfortable that he was, you know, a functional heroin addict and he could still we'd known bad times um, and different things. And we'd kicked him out and, you know, we hadn't seen him for a while and he'd been in jail. But it also hit a time where, you know, he stopped going to jail and around his mid-30s. And he had a girlfriend and he also has a son. And and he was, you know, um, he, it was hard to keep a job, um, but he was a hard worker. So, um, and, you know, he would have an apartment. So compared to where he was in, say, his 20s and, you know, in, in jail at different times, this was a big improvement, and um, so he was—he was still struggling with addiction, but he was—I um, mean, he was making progress in his own way. And um, so we had just—we had kind of become comfortable with the fact that Aaron, you know, was probably going to be going to use the rest of his life, even though he didn't want to. Um, and a lot of times, he wouldn't even talk to us about it anymore. It would be something that. We would engage with him with or, you know, when times were bad, there were certainly, you know, times that were bad, but we, it was, it was 20 plus years. So we'd almost, we'd settled into, you know, what this, um, this life would be like um, living with a functional addict. So that's uh, totally understandable. I mean, <laughs> and I'm sure you're not the only family, right? That you, you, um, you hard to keep going with this so you 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 like grasp for any hope you can and okay he's settled he's in a bit of a better place than he was uh so you're saying functional addiction does not exist so what does that mean if, if you know for families what should they do i mean i think that some of the places that i've just come to is um really always trying to meet i wish i would have done better at you know meeting aaron where he was at the time. Um, I, I was angry with him for, for using, I was jealous that he just couldn't stop. Um, and I know it's irrational, but, um, um, I, um, I wish I would have just had more compassion for, um, even more compassion, I should say, for where, what that struggle every single day was like. Um, I wish I could have seen a longer term plan with, um, you know, with Suboxone, like I mentioned before, it was like, okay, fine, get on it and then get off. Let's get back to life. Um, but I've, I've read many stories. I've heard podcasts. I've, I've talked to people who, um, they say that, you know, Suboxone, you know, whether they, it did, we bought so much time with Aaron. And, you know, I learned, um, I learned just a couple of weeks ago that, um, a family friend of ours, um, heroin took this brilliant boy's life three days before his high school graduation. 
um, this was my daughter's first best friend, my first mom friend. And um, my heart is just shattered for her. Um, um, but he wanted to get on Suboxone, and they had an appointment the next day. And his struggle was so much shorter than what Aaron's was. Um, but I think that you just have to meet the person where they are and try everything that you can. I definitely believe in peer support. Um, I, I believe in finding your spark and your hope. We often you know, tried to give that to Aaron to be like, you know, let's go fishing today or whatever that was to, to, to be that for each other. But just having compassion and meeting people where they are on their journey and not being critical of it, no matter where it is. Well, let's take another break. We'll come back with our final segment with uh, Michelle Church, um, who, uh, with her uh, brother, Aaron, uh, created a Light to Remember, uh, the fourth annual event is coming up in uh, in August next month. We're also talking with Brian Nielsen, the lead uh, CPSS trainer for the USU Certified Peer Support uh, Program. And uh, he also um, founded... Um, the, the Utah Association of Peer Support Specialists, and he's been telling us his uh, journey of recovery. Uh, we'll have more following this break. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Today we're partnering with Debunked, which dispels myths about opioid crisis and harm reduction. We're in conversation with Brian Nielsen, who's the lead CPSS trainer for USU Certified Peer Support Program. We're also talking with Michelle Church, who, along with her brother Aaron, created a Light to Remember, which honors those lost to substance use disorder, gets information out, provides hope. That uh, next event, fourth annual, is coming up in uh, in August. Um, Debunked was created by Utah State University Office of Health Equity and Community Engagement and uh, Tribal and Rural Opioid Initiative, which are housed within the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services, Department of Kinesiology and Health Science, and USU Extension. Program is made possible by SAMHSA, Utah Public Radio, and uh, community partners. Uh, so, Brian Nielsen, we've been talking about uh, peer support. You're heavily uh, involved. I mentioned uh, not only are you the lead CPSS trainer for USU Certified Peer Support Program, you founded a uh, organization, Utah Association of Peer Support Specialists. So, tell us a little bit more. Uh, where do uh, certified peer support specialists work? Peer specialists um, work <clears throat> just about any kind of recovery agency. Um, I, I work with people that are in, you know, privately owned, just peer-run organizations, and I work with people that are in all the behavioral health centers, you know, the county-funded and federal-funded behavioral health centers. They work in hospitals and turn to break them into to the primary care settings. Um, they work just about anywhere, all across the state now. For a while, it took a long time to get started. Mm. But I was thinking, can I just touch on that fun- functioning addict statement? Y- yes, yes, go ahead. <clears throat> a functioning addict, functioning addict is totally false. There's no such thing as a functioning addict. Addiction is an obsession in the mind. Um there's functioning users, people they can use on the weekend or once a month and, you know, never go back to it. But functioning addict is, it's not really true. There's obsessions in the mind. I lost my brother. I used to call him a functioning addict. 
he used a lot. Um, he lived in a storage unit. And then I went to to Texas to do a job and came back and found that he had committed suicide. It was all because of his, you know, his addiction and things he was doing in his addiction uh, that I didn't really see. I kind of missed it because I called him a functioning addict. I figured he was happy where he was, and I didn't really didn't see where he was. And so I probably failed as a peer sport in that area. Um, but when you're thinking about them kind of things, you need to kind of get into what's their mind frame. Are they depressed? Are they happy? Um, and like we talked about meeting where they are, having compassion, just trying to differentiate if they have to have the drug or the whatever um, then it's clear pretty clear there there's an addiction going on not just functioning mm. yeah it sounds like a very important uh, message to, to get out there uh so michelle church um another just uh, sense that you sent me that's impactful and have you uh, respond to this and that maybe brian nelson respond as well um, so substance use disorder is, is a chronic disease. Abstinence is not the answer. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, it's it's understanding that, um, you know, addiction is, is a change in brain function. Um, so treating it unlike, you know, you would treat a diabetic and saying, you know, just get over it or, you know, um, going in and having a, a diabetic episode and getting insulin and then going off insulin, that doesn't work. And when we look at substance abuse disorder, um, you know, we have to look at it the same way. You, you cannot tell someone who um, is struggling, you know, just not to use because physically they'll get dope sick if they don't. And I mean, I, I've got, I have terrible memories of, um, you know, Aaron, coming to my home at one point and he just needed $5 because I know he just needed to go get high. But he gave me this, you know, this silly story and I was so busy and, and I mean, it was just, it was a very low, low point um, for me. But I look back on it and think about how low that was for him. Um, he, that he needed, he needed drugs just to even feel okay. So just to tell someone not to do it, I mean, that's just never going to work. It's never going to work. I really think that you have to take into account, um, you know, where they are mentally and what's happening, how long they've been using, um, you know, and where they're at. And we, we have still so much to learn about substance abuse disorder. But um, I can just tell you right now that I, Suboxone alone is just an idea that I fought for so long. And, and I'm not saying that everyone should run out and get you know, get on Suboxone. But I do definitively know that that drug bought me a lot of time with my brother. And, you know, I can be nothing but grateful for that and open my mind to understanding. Uh, Sabrina Nilsson, I want to get your reaction to, to this, the, the, the statement, abstinence is not the answer. Abstinence definitely is not the answer. Um, I think abstinence theory comes from, you know, the 12-step method. But they don't just practice abstinence. Um, if you think about it, even if you get past, you know, being dope sick and you've got six months or whatever and you've been abstinent, even if you got a year or 12 years, 
and that's all you're doing is staining. Um, you're going to be left with just a shell of, of a person that doesn't, you know, they're not happy. They're not, they're just trying to be absent, just trying to. So that's where with, with me and with peer sport and with everything else that I do in my whole life is I try to connect people into to informal supports of what's going to make it all worth it. The 12-step people kind of do that too. It's in a little bit different fashion, but once we get a little bit sober, what, what's what's who are you? What's going to make it worth it? Um, do you like running? Do you like hiking? Do you like drawing? Um, do you like talking to your family? Do you like writing kids' books? I love that with my kids. Um, and Suboxone and mat treatment could very well be a part of that. Um, I explore every option. Uh, it's kind of sad that some recovery models will go against mat treatment, and I'm always 100% for it because no matter no matter the the strengths you have and the treatments you decide to use, um, I know people have been on Suboxone for years and are in recovery and have built lives outside those obsessions. And the reason they've, they've built those lives is because the obsessions were removed and they could start exploring into who am I now? Who, what, what, is, what do I really look like outside of all this? For me, I just identified as, uh, I kind of, I don't know, the drugs and that, everything was kind of my spiritual sense. I identified with it so strongly that it, to just take it away, it would have been lost. Mm. Uh, Michelle Church, you you advocate for safe injection sites. Tell me about that. Um, I think that that's one of the other things that I could have been more compassionate about. And quite honestly, um, if I had to do it all over again, I I would have um, at least with my experience with my brother. Um, you know, there's times that he lived with me and lived on my couch and in my different homes. And, but, um, I would have, I would have been more compassionate for when, you know, he needed to use and he wasn't in a good place. It's nothing that I would choose or that I would want, but, um, it's a compassionate way to go about dealing with the problem at hand, because if they exist, fewer people die. Um, my brother um, passed away um, in a home uh, that he lived in and um, with some roommates, and he had a room in there. And he he likely, you know, wasn't discovered for a few days. Um, and um, safe injection sites, I mean, we can see different studies. We can see um, how they are working. They are effective, and they're another thing that helps keep, keep people alive who are struggling with substance abuse. So it's really not a model that we need to sit back and scratch our head and say, "This will this make it work? We can look at different areas and already know that it is saving lives. Therefore, it worked. I'll just have a couple minutes uh, left. Uh, so I want to just quickly, just, just one minute to turn back to Brian Nielsen. Um, where can people find information if, if, if we've sparked some interest and somebody wants to become a certified uh, peer support specialist? Uh, they can get on the state's website. It's uh, just search Utah Peer Support. Um, the application will come right up, or they can um, also go to our website at, at 
uaps.org, uaps.org, and just get in contact with me. Okay, and we'll get those uh, websites up on our website as well, along with this uh, this uh, episode. Um, and Michelle uh, Church, so uh, a light to remember. Where can people find information? And uh, tell me a bit about the the event coming up in August. Yeah, so this year we're excited. Um, one of the things that we are looking to do most is try and get this programming out to rural communities because obviously we know that that is where the need exists most. Um, or there's just a great need as well, I should put it that way. Um, we've been fortunate to grow the program from Davis County to Tooele County for the um, past couple of years. This year we'll be adding in um, Salt Lake County as well. Um, we're working on our website um, that we hope to have up later this week where we will have resources and toolkits. So if you are in one of those uh, rural communities, you can download our information or get in contact with us so we can help you and guide you on how to create um, um, an event in your own area. Um, We keep all of that information on the USU Extension um, event website, and then we will have a website up later this week as well at alighttoremember.com. All right. Uh, wonderful. Well, um, appreciate uh, both of you for the conversation. Uh, uh, Brian Nielsen is lead CPSS trainer for USU Certified Peer Support uh, Program. Um, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And Michelle Church uh, helped create a light to remember, which honors those lost to substance use disorder. Um, and uh, we appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, thanks to good folks uh, involved with Debunked, and uh, thanks to you for listening uh, to the program today.